Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. Um, and as you are turning there, I want to remind you or share with you something that I was thinking about this week. You know there was a, a time in the life of God's people, and it's recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, uh, in particular chapter 8, when the mere opening of the book, I mean the mere lifting of the book in front of the people and opening of the book and then the sincere proclamation of God's word caused God's people to stand to their feet, to lift their hands, to cry out amen and amen, and for some to fall to their knees and, and bow on their face in, in prayer and confession. Just the mere cracking open of the book. A lot has changed since that day. Um, for us, I, I heard someone talking about this and it struck a chord in me as I thought about us. Today, all of those responses are associated with what? The strum of a chord, the playing of a note, the beginning of a song, a simple melody causes us, God's people, to stand to our feet, to lift up our hands, to sing, and for some of us at particular times to fall to our face and pray, but there was a day when the simple presence of God's word caused that kind of response from God's people. And I started to think, what would it take for that to be a reality again? I mean, how far have we, have we come? And that's not to diminish the, the role of, of music in the life of our body. We celebrate that, and it's celebrated in Nehemiah chapter 12, just a few chapters over. But Nehemiah chapter 8, the word of the Lord was lifted before the people, and before it was opened, God's people, under the authority of that word, the sense of the majesty of that word, the understanding of whose word it was, that was coming to them caused them to stand to their feet, to shout amen, to lift up their hands and surrender to the one who was speaking to them. So in honor of God's word and, and our commitment to be a people who want to increasingly reflect a soul that is being cultivated to surrender to God's word, why don't we stand up this morning I want you to join me in the reading of God's Word and the simple proclamation of God's Word in hopes that God would honor His Word in our midst this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. You can read with me. There are Bibles on the back table if you don't have one, and the majority of this will come up on the screen, I believe. So, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they must be filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simple but yet profound power of your word. And we ask that by your spirit you would do with your word what only you can do this morning and that you would continue to cultivate in us hearts and souls and minds that are anxious to surrender to your word, that are anxious to find themselves under your word, that are anxious to find themselves delighting in your word. And we ask this, Lord, that you would be honored, that you would be praised, that you would be lifted up, that you would be made known. And in your precious son, Jesus, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. There was a, a time not, not too long ago in my own life uh, when I was interning at a, at a fairly large church in Nashville, Tennessee. This was many, many moons ago. And and while I was interning at this church, a, a pastor from a church in Brooklyn, New York, wrote a book that swept through the, the church culture that I was a part of in particular. And it was called Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. And you can hear the allusions to the text that we read this morning. And while I remember agreeing with the sentiment of the author and the intention of the author and the sentiment of the people around me that were so captivated by this book and to this day still are captivated by this book. I, I agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment that the author was trying to make, but I've also witnessed and witnessed then and have continued to witness that, that sentiment, that desire producing a desire to see what we just read about in Acts chapter 2 replicated today. Uh, a desire to not see something fresh of God's spirit and God's power and God's presence, as we talked about last week, doing something in our midst today, but that directing our hearts and, and directing the minds and desires of people back to Acts chapter 2 and saying, if only what happened then would happen now, then everything would be different. And I have witnessed and talked with and spent time with and done life with numbers of people who have this growing angst within them because their heart is longing. And while I agree with the sentiment and I agree with the desire and I agree with the want, they have this desire to see this thing replicated today, not knowing that if they just understood the significance of what was going on in this particular day in Acts chapter 2, they would realize that they don't want that to happen again. 
if they just understood what was really going on then, on that day and that time in human history, they would realize that they don't want that to happen again because like any reenactment and any recycling of something old, the second and the third time is never quite as powerful as the first. And if God were to do the very thing they want to see this moment replicated again, it would dilute the reality and the significance of what's going on here. But I concur with the sentiment. And I concur with the desire that they're trying to express. And my hope this morning, if you've been in church for any period of time, the story that we just read, the text that we just read is not unfamiliar to you. And if you haven't been in church for any significant period of time and you've come as a guest this morning, it sounded really weird to you. And the majority of time when in the church we have read this kind of text, we have tried to major on all the minors and major on all the weird and we've missed the forest for the trees and My hope this morning is that we could come anew to the text, that we could wrestle with the significance of this text, and if God, by his grace, would help us to see the reality of what was going on then, what happened in that place at that time, it would produce in us a healthy longing and desire for something fresh. I was singing a a hymn that got stuck in my head last night, Praise to the Lord Almighty. Are you familiar with that hymn? There's this verse, there's this two lines in verse 3, where it says, Ponder anew what the Almighty may do if in His love He befriend thee. And I think that verse, that little line, captures a bit of the angst and the desire that we have a hard time talking about, a hard time getting our heads and our minds and our hearts around, a hard time expressing that there is something that we desire. We are not yet what we want to be, and we sense a reality that God has the capacity and the power to do what we can't do, and we're not what we want to be and where we want to be. And maybe this morning we can ponder Acts 2 anew. We can ponder anew what the Almighty can do if in His love He befriends thee if in his love he befriends us maybe by doing that this morning and trying to understand the significance of that day and that moment that we read about in acts chapter 2 god will cultivate within our hearts an openness to an arrival of his presence in fresh ways so as we get started let me catch those of you up who haven't been here and I'll try to do it quick. In the, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a glimpse into the final moment of Jesus with his disciples before he ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns right now. We, we've had a glimpse into that final time, that final period, those 40 days when he encouraged them and taught them and and showed them how all that was in the scriptures was about him and was directed to him and was for him and he gave them this direction in the moments before his final ascension and and in their excitement and in their exuberance and in their passion and in their anticipation and in all that they have been through with Jesus there with them again and a sense of the taste of the reality of what was possible They come to him and they say, now how and when are you going to finally do all that we have wanted 
all that we have longed for, all that we understand you've promised for centuries. How and when are you going to do that? Is that time now? And we looked at the last couple of weeks of his answer and he gave his disciples his plan for doing the very thing they wanted. It was just different than they had anticipated. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to the city and I want you to wait until you receive power from on high. And we looked last week at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And so we looked at that, and we've looked at their response. The response of his disciples who had spent time with him, who had walked with him, who had seen him, who had been loved by him, who were with him in these last days before his ascension. We looked at their response of obedience to the command of Jesus that was characterized by a dependence and a desperation upon his presence to do the very thing and be the very people that he was calling them to be. And their obedience that was characterized by such a dependence gave way to that response of deep and abiding in corporate prayer. And now we're going to get into Acts chapter 2. And I want you to remain human. This is always one of my tasks when we study the Bible together. I want you to read the Bible and I want you to remain human. I want you to think, I mean, what must it have been like for these guys? I mean, what were their emotions like at this point? I mean, you can think about it and try to put yourself in their place and, and, and try to wonder what it felt like and, and the turmoil that they had been through from crucifixion to the days following to the resurrection to Jesus' appearing to the 40 days with him as he taught them and encouraged them and gave them proof as to who he was and what he was doing and their hope of what was to come because of his presence and his victory over death and then his commitment to them but his command to them that he must leave and they must go that there is going to be a power that's going to come that he's talked about to them in the past but they probably didn't really understand and then there with Jesus wondering ah, I'm not really sure what he's talking about He's up, he's gone. And there's angels. Why are you looking in the sky? Get about the very thing he told you to do. And so they go in their obedience back to Jerusalem, back to the city to wait for a power that was on high. But what in the world was that going to be like? I mean, here's the thing. Don't miss this. When we read Acts chapter 2, again, for those of you who have any kind of church background, you hear Acts chapter 2, you hear, okay, Holy Spirit, Pentecost, beginning of the church, weird stuff, big wind, fire, whoa, that's strange. These guys had no context for that. What must have they felt like? I mean, Jesus said, you're going to go to the city and you're going to wait for power that's going to come on high. This is power that the guy who just rose from the grave and demonstrated mightily to them the proof of his resurrection has just said, I'm going to send a power that's going to come from on high to you. What? Can you imagine what had to be going through their heads? The nervousness, the, the anxiousness, the excitement, but the wonder. Now we're coming to this text and we don't get a glimpse of what was going through their brain. But we've gotten so familiar with what the Bible actually says here that I think we miss the big point in the forest for the trees. And so I want us to walk through this this morning with an eye towards some of the subtleties and significance in this passage that by God's grace, if, if he would help us to see the significance of this time and moment, it would cultivate in us a, an openness to the desperation for his presence. Acts chapter 2, verse 
1. Luke starts off like this. When, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, there's something really interesting here. Luke didn't have to say what he just said. Luke could have said, when they were all together, while they were together praying, but he didn't say that, did he? He said, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Luke wants his readers, Theophilus and those who would read this work that he had commissioned and that he would distribute, and now in God's providence, us, to associate what he's about to talk about what's about to happen that he's going to write about with this idea of Pentecost. Remember, Luke was a careful researcher of all the things that had happened and that had, had gone before him, and he wanted Theophilus and us readers to have certainty as to the things that were coming. So he was very particular in communicating and choosing his words, and he said, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, the fulfillment of God's promise and the coming of his presence to be with his people, to empower his people is somehow connected in Luke's mind and fulfilled and and made bigger and more majestic and more deep as our minds are connected to this thing that he's talking about when he talks about Pentecost. So let me help us try to catch the significance of of what Luke is saying here so that maybe we can see in a a new way the magnitude of, of this day. Now remember that the disciples and I was talking about this a second ago, but the disciples and Luke's early readers, they, they experienced this story firsthand. Those disciples were the ones who experienced what we just read. They didn't get any foreshadowing about what was going to happen. When Jesus said, a power is going to come to you from on high, they didn't know what that was going to be like. They had no idea how that was going to happen. They just obeyed. And they prayed, and as they gathered, God began to fulfill his promises. And so they had come together to celebrate this festival, this feast called Pentecost. It was one of the high feasts of the Jewish calendar, of the Jewish celebration. And we've talked about it a lot here at Redemption Hill. And for for those who have been around, you've, you've heard us talk about this all the time. But God did a wonderful thing in the life of his people. And you can go back into the Old Testament and read of the stories, but God created a calendar for his people that would celebrate his character, that would celebrate his glory, that would celebrate his attributes, that would celebrate his care for and provision for his people by giving them and instituting them a series of feasts, a series of parties that would occur throughout the year that their lives then fit into a rhythm of. So God gave his people a calendar that would celebrate who he was how he had cared for them and given them and delivered them and provided for them so that their life was in a rhythm of remembering who God was and what he had done for them and the rest of their life fit into that. And the Feast of of Pentecost was one of these particular feasts that they were to celebrate to remember God's goodness and God's provision. And it's Pentecost. It's 50 days after the previous feast, the Feast of Passover. And if you know the Passover story, you remember that God's people were in bondage to the Egyptians and slavery to the Egyptians and under the cruel taskmaster of the Egyptians. And they've been crying out for centuries for God to, to break in and to release them, to, to overwhelm the Egyptians and to return them back to him, to be 
the, his people and him to be their God. And God listened to their cries and he answered their prayers. And he used a man named Moses to deliver his people from bondage to Egypt. But on the way out, as a sign of his glory and as a sign of what was to come, God told his people to do something in particular. You're familiar, you know the story. He told them the night before they were to, to leave Egypt and, and, and flee, that they were to take a lamb, a, a particular type of lamb that had a particular quality to it, and they were to take the blood of that lamb, and they were to cover their doorpost in it. And as God would, spin, would send an, an angel of death through the land to kill the firstborn of all of the homes and all of the houses that did not have the blood of that sacrificial lamb covering their doorpost, that the firstborn in that house would die. But those who had the blood of that sacrificial lamb would be spared, it would be delivered. And his people did that, and God instituted as he delivered them from Egypt and passed them through the Red Sea and and crushed the armies of Egypt that were trying to follow them and capture them in the Red Sea and delivered them towards the Promised Land. God instituted this feast called Passover for his people to celebrate every single year to remember his deliverance of them, his redemption of them, his rescue of them, his provision for them in the wilderness as he would provide for them with water from rocks and bread from heaven and guidance through the day and guidance through the night. And he gave them this feast to remember that every single year. Their, their year would crescendo in the celebration of Passover and God's deliverance of his people and his promise to one day deliver them all. And 50 days later would come this festival called the, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits or what we now know of as Pentecost. And so God's people would gather again 50 days after Passover to celebrate it. And it was a harvest festival. They would come together with the first fruits of their harvest and, and they would offer the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to God, celebrating that God had again carried them through the previous year and had provided for them in such a way that there was something to actually harvest. That God had not forgotten his people, that God had not neglected his people, but that God again, year after year, has provided for his people and they have something to glean, something to harvest, and they would bring that into the temple and celebrate as a people God's provision for them, the the first fruits of his provision for them. You can find it in Leviticus chapter 23. So Pentecost, for those who were gathered in Jerusalem at this time in Acts chapter 2, for the disciples who had gathered to celebrate Passover with Jesus before his crucifixion and his eventual resurrection, for the rest that we'll read about in Acts chapter 2, they were in the city again 50 days later to celebrate this great feast of first fruits. And Acts chapter 2 is ultimately then the celebration of God's provision. And the first fruits of what was to come, the beginning of a different kind of harvest. The beginning of a long-awaited harvest. And Luke wants us to have that story and that association as the backdrop of the stage that this story is playing out on. He wants us to read the rest of what's happening here in this text with the backdrop on the lens of the people celebrating God's provision and the first fruits of what was to come. The first fruits of a provision that he had promised. The first fruits of a harvest and a promise fulfilled. This wasn't a crazy prayer meeting. This wasn't a wildly Pentecostal worship service. This, in Acts chapter 2, was the fulfillment of ancient promises that God's people had been waiting for century after century after century. The time had come and God now 
was coming to dwell with his people and not just with his people as he had done in the past, but as he had promised, he was now dwelling in his people. Jeremiah 31 records this unbelievable promise that the disciples and the readers of Acts chapter 2 at this day would associate what was going on with. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There was this wonderful rabbinic tradition that records that the people of God, the, the Israelites, after reading and understanding Exodus 19, chapter 1, would celebrate God giving his people the law. God giving his people the written word. That they would celebrate God's giving of them his gracious direction at the Feast of Weeks. They would do the math from Exodus 19, chapter 1, and they would deduce that from the time that when God had given them the law, 50 days later matched up with the same Feast of Weeks, the feast of the first fruits that he had told them to celebrate. So a tradition had grown in, in the Jewish culture by this time in Acts chapter 2 that not only were they celebrating the harvest of the first fruits of God's provision, but they were celebrating the time when God had given them his word, his law, the, the Torah, and how great is it? How great is it that in God's providence and in God's good time that when they come together to celebrate God's giving the word that could only sit outside of them? The word that they could only measure themselves towards. He fulfills his ancient promise to take that word and write it on their hearts. What was at one time, for a long time, only external to them, God promised that he would one day make it an internal reality for them. And the time that they come together to celebrate that giving of that word, God fulfills that long-awaited promise in the midst of them. And he honors his covenant promise and he takes from them the heart of stone and he gives them the heart of flesh and he takes what was once external and he makes it internal. Something that Luke wants you to see when he notes this thing about Pentecost. There is a significance going on here that can't be repeated again. And then if we understand it, we don't want it repeated again. We don't want that to happen again because of the significance that it had there. But Jeremiah wasn't the only one. Not only is God replacing the external law by an internal transformation and a power given by God within us. Ezekiel records this, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36. For those of you who want to check me, you can do Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I won't put it on the screen, though. He said, I will take you, talking about his people, from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And hell, listen to this. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I, God says, will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The long-awaited hope had finally come on this day. The change that God had promised, the hope that God had given his people, the longing that they had been waiting for centuries to see fulfilled had come. This was now an internal internal reality to his people. It was a comprehensive transformation of their soul and of their heart. No longer were there intermediaries that had to go before them between God and his spirit and the people. No longer did they need a priest to make a sacrifice on their behalf to to walk into the presence of God for the remittance of their sins because that sacrifice had been made once for all in Jesus and God's vindication of that had now allowed him to fulfill his long-awaited promise to tear the veil and to rend the sacrifice so that he could pour out his spirit and he could remove from his people a heart of stone and remove from his people an external law that they could only once measure themselves by and replace that heart with a heart of flesh and on that heart write God's law. Give them desires to enjoy him deeply. Give them desires to enjoy him deeply and compel them to honor him fully with their lives. This is what Peter will point out in the rest of Acts chapter 2 when he stands up and gives the first of what are many great sermons in the book of Acts. This is the long-awaited promise that what had happened 50, probably five, four days before made possible. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus made the reality of what God's people experienced in Acts chapter 2 possible. The first and the last, the final and the complete Passover sacrifice had been made. Jesus had entered into the temple on behalf of his people. He had laid down his perfect life as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. His body was broken and his blood was spilled. He suffered and exhausted the wrath of God in our place. He was crucified, he was dead, he was buried. And three days later, in vindication of Jesus' perfect life, lived in our place, in his sacrificial death for our sin, God raised him from the dead. And in that moment, he removed centuries of distance between God and man. He made possible what had never been made possible. God's spirit that had been withdrawn from men in times because of their sin was now not just made available to men, but was poured out on them and in them. The long-awaited transformation had finally come because of the cross. That's the significance of the day. That's the significance of the moment. That's why he did it when he did it. But why did he do it the way he did? This is where we all get twisted and befuddled. And it's really not that hard. It's really not that difficult. Let's keep reading. Why did he do it this way? Well, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And this is what you think of when you read Acts 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit gave them utterance. Just notice a few things as we read through this. Well, 
point out a few trees. But by God's grace, we won't get caught up in them and miss the entire forest. Notice that Luke said they heard something like a mighty rushing wind. They heard something like a mighty rushing wind. They saw something like or as of fire. I want you to pick up what, what's happening. Luke is using the limit of his vocabulary to explain the reality of what had occurred. I mean, what had occurred had gone beyond the limits of our capacity to use our mouths to communicate. This happens throughout the scriptures in, in, in moments of, of books of prophecy and times of prophecy. Understanding that when you read particular books in the Bible, books like Revelation, they're, they're bumping up against realities of God and limits of human communication. And, he, and Luke says there's something like a mighty rushing wind and something like tongues of fire, something as of those things resting on their heads. And I want you to catch the expanse of what was going on that Luke is grasping for a way to understand it. But I don't want you to get caught up on those particular things because you need to see that the people who would have read this book when Luke wrote this, his original hearers, those who were actually here experiencing this reality in Acts 2, they all had hooks for those things. We look around and go, mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, did they dance, did they move? What did it look like? They had hooks for those things. They had a, a perspective that those particular choices that God gave, the ways that God moved in that moment, they had an understanding for it. It wasn't as weird to them as it probably was to us. You see, throughout the Bible, the wind is a consistent symbol for the Spirit of God. I mean, these were Old Testament men. I want you to get that. Their mastery of God's word did not extend to the, the Gospels and the Epistles and Romans and the book of Acts. These were Old Testament men. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And throughout the Old Testament, the, the wind is, is used numerous times to refer to or relate to God's spirit. In fact, in the Hebrew language, they had a word for the spirit of God that was actually translated wind or breath. They had a different word for the human spirit. They had an altogether different word for the Spirit of God, and it was best translated wind or breath. It starts in Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. The breath, the wind of God was hovering, was moving, was active. These people had a, a, an idea, a hook, a, a category for the active presence of God in the midst of his people that was like a, a mighty rushing wind, that was, that was like a, a heavy breath. They, they had a reality. They had a perspective on that. It wasn't strange or, or foreign to them, and we'll see it displayed in just a second again in, in Ezekiel, and fire was the same way. Throughout the Old Testament, you can find story after story of God's active presence with his people somehow represented to them through fire. I mean, what comes to your mind when you, when you think about that? You can go back as early as, as who? Moses? The active presence of God meeting with Moses in a burning bush that was full of flames but never consumed? The fire of God's presence meeting with his people? What about the pillar of fire that led God's people through the night? through the deserts, towards the promised land, the active presence of God with his people leading them and guiding them. They had, they had hooks for these things. It wasn't a, a foreign concept to them. It wasn't just a, a really strange and abnormal reality. There was perspective and how gracious of God. How gracious of God to come in the way that he has come, but to condescend to the realities that he had already given his people. 
They understood wind. They understood fire. They understood being filled. That wasn't a foreign reality either. The idea of being filled with God's Spirit was something they had context for. You see, in the Old Testament, they would have learned and they would have heard the stories and they would have read of the Spirit of God coming upon particular people. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you can hear about the Spirit of God coming upon kings, coming upon, upon prophets, coming upon priests, coming upon servants of God. You can think of men like Saul, men like David, men like Bezalel, who the Spirit of God came upon and gave him the capacity to produce mighty works of craftsmanship and art for God's glory. The Spirit of God would, would come upon and fill particular people, but in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would also withdraw. The Spirit of God would come and and for a particular time and a particular purpose to a particular person, it would come upon them and fill them, but then it would withdraw. It would go away. Sometimes because the purpose for which it had come was completed, other times because of the sin of God's people. You read Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11 and a vision that God gave Ezekiel of his presence dwelling amongst his people, but then because of their sin being removed from it. There's allusions to that in this, but we, we won't get quite that deep. But they were familiar with God's Spirit coming upon people to fill people. They knew that His presence rested among them in the temple. But when the temple had been rebuilt, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was no presence within it. It had been withdrawn. The glory of God did not reside amongst His people anymore. But remember the the prophets the men that God had given his people in times of great distress. He had warned the people through the prophets and told the people that a time was coming when God would return and his presence would not just dwell amongst his people, but his presence would dwell within his people, would animate his people in a way they had never seen. Ezekiel chapter 37, you don't have to go there. Let me just show you one of these great texts. Some of you have probably heard this before. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to read a piece then I'm just going to give you the highlights so you can understand what I'm saying. Ezekiel said in chapter 37 verse 1, well he didn't say in 37 verse 1, we added the verses, but the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones and he led me around them and behold there were many very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, only you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, spirit, wind, to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath, spirit in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Luke's readers, the disciples, the men who experienced the realities of Acts 2 had hooks and hope for the day when God would do the very thing that he had promised. That his spirit would take what sin had dried out and decayed, and would breathe new life into, would animate in a way that only God could do. He would put his spirit, his breath, 
within them. All of them being filled in the Holy Spirit here. It was not a foreign concept to God's people. It wasn't even weird to them. But this promise that Ezekiel and the other prophets longed for, hoped for, awaited for, and never in their life got to see ultimately became a reality in Jesus. I want you to see this. When you talk about a spirit-filled life, it's not a weird thing. We make it weird. We talk about a spirit-filled life and there are particular people who have pronounced that they're the gurus of spirit-filled life and being spirit-filled means looking like them and living like them and doing what they do and they're morons. They're far from biblical and close to heretical. And there are a number of, of books written about this in particular in the book of Acts and I would commend a few of them to you. Christopher Wright, The Mission of God and Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament but I'm going to read a piece from another book to you called Vintage Church from a theologian named Gary Bershears and a pastor named Mark Driscoll on this promise of God filling his people, becoming a reality in Jesus, because I don't want you to miss the significance of what's going on here. I don't want you to get lost in the trees and miss the forest. They said this, and I'm going to read it extensively to you, but I commend the whole thing to you. Luke goes to great lengths. He's talking about his gospel and his book of Acts to bring the reality of the promise of God filling his people becoming fulfilled in Jesus. There we find that Jesus, in the book of Luke he's talking about, there we find Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and given the title Christ, which means anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' aunt was filled with the Holy Spirit when greeting Jesus' pregnant mother Mary and his uncle Zachariah went out to prophesy that their son John was appointed by God to prepare the way for Jesus. An angel revealed to Mary that she would give birth to Jesus. And when Mary asked how that was possible, since she was a virgin, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So the filling of God's people by God's Spirit surrounded the birth of Jesus. But then once born, Jesus was dedicated to the Lord in the temple according to the demands of the law by Simeon. And Luke records that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw Jesus. Simeon was in the Spirit when he prophesied about Jesus' ministry to the Jews and the Gentiles to the glory of God. John later prophesied that one day Jesus would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his own baptism. And in the remainder of Luke's gospel, we discover that Jesus was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, and came in power by the Spirit. And after standing up in the synagogue and reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus then declared, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke continues to reveal that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, and regarding the Holy Spirit's ministry to and through Christians, Jesus promised that God's Father, God the Father, would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, and that the Holy Spirit would teach us once he was sent to us. Jesus, then, is the quintessential example of what it means to live a Spirit-filled life. And following his death on the cross in our place for our sins, Jesus rose by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he commissioned his disciples to continue his spirit-empowered mission and ministry. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see the reality of Jesus breaking in and the promise being fulfilled and the first fruits celebrated in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Christopher Green, who wrote a great book on the book of Acts called 30 Years That Changed the World, he said that the gospel of Luke shows that what God began to do and through his servant and anointed witness, Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the acts 
That's what he calls the book of Acts, the Acts. I like that. The Acts shows what God has and continues to do through his servants, his anointed witnesses, filled with the power of his spirit. It helps us to see today that when we talk about living a life that is spirit-filled, it's living a life that reflects the reality of a life like Jesus. Jesus is the quintessential example of what it means to live a spirit-filled life, not the guy on TV at 2 o'clock in the morning. And this helps. You've got to see this. This isn't just to poke fun at something. This, This helps because when talking about the Spirit of God, we're always talking about the Spirit of Jesus. You've got to know that. You've got to be strengthened by that so that you won't be deceived by other things. When we're talking about the Spirit of God, we're talking about the Spirit of Jesus. The task of the Spirit Luke recorded and John recorded as well was to bear witness to Jesus. So we've got to be careful if we talk about any kind of teaching or any kind of preaching or any kind of writing or any kind of ministry that is Spirit-led that doesn't ultimately find its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Because the work of the Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus. And the ministry that he has set us out upon is to bear witness to him. So any teaching that ultimately doesn't bear witness to the promises fulfilled in the person of Jesus and applied to his people through his word is not spirit-filled, is not spirit-led. Does that make sense? You've got to catch this. To be spirit-filled is to simply be like Jesus. It's not crazy. Don't let him rob you of it. Don't let the charlatans and the foolish people who get their kicks on television rob you from the reality of the promise of God's Spirit. To be Spirit-filled is to simply be like Jesus. But let me pick on another tree. That's one tree we get all twisted up by. Let me, let me pick on another tree. Let me look at my clock. I've got to go quick. But I don't want to pass it up. They heard something like a mighty rushing wind. They saw something like tongues of fire, but then there was something that was said as well. Luke records that all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And let me just say this. If you wrote the books down that I gave you, write this down. Raymond did a great job months ago expounding for us over about a month and a half, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, on the person and work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in distributing gifts to God's people and in taking us simply through the text of Scripture to understand what that is talking about and what that means. Because when it comes to this particular verse, as it relates not only to this moment, but to the rest of Scripture, there are as many interpretations as there are interpreters. You can get lost in a sea of speculation and and foolishness when it comes to this stuff. But I, I want to clarify a couple of things that are pretty common when it comes to this. A lot of people say that what happened right here in Acts chapter 2 and when these men were speaking in, in, in these particular tongues and people were hearing the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own language is that they were simply preaching. And I, and I want to clarify for you that that is not what was happening there. They were not preaching. Let, let me give you a, a definition of preaching that has been very helpful for me in my years of actually doing it. This is one of my favorite definitions of preaching. It comes from a guy named David Helm. He says, Preaching is the public proclamation of Jesus as fulfillment of the promises in Scripture. Preaching unpacks a text within its context under the power of the Holy Spirit, showing how Jesus and the gospel are the fulfillment of the promises and then applied to the people's lives. That's preaching. That's not what's happening here. Luke makes no mention of any texts being expounded. 
Preaching occurs when this text is over and Peter stands up and he begins to take Old Testament texts and expound how they were fulfilled in their hearing at that moment through the person and work of Jesus and then applies them to their life that they might have understanding of what's going on. That's preaching. That's not what was happening here. They weren't preaching. The Holy Spirit who distributes God's gifts to God's people to empower them for the equipping and the building up and the encouragement of the body of Christ was being distributed here. And one particular gift, if you go back and listen to Ray's series, is is the gift of tongues. And I will not go into a detailed excursus on the gift of tongues other than when you read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, in particular chapters 13 and 14, you'll see that as the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to God's people, he distributes this thing called the gift of tongues where the Holy Spirit in particular times and for particular reasons empowers and engages men to speak in the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. It means at times God's Spirit will empower men to speak in a language unknown by anyone here on the earth, a language of prayer and a language of praise that has an absolutely vertical dimension. God's Spirit does that through God's people for their edification, their encouragement, and God's glory. But he also gives what's called a gift of of tongues where he enables men to speak in the tongues of men, languages that they have never studied, that they have never learned, that they have never known before. I've actually been with somebody who experienced this. God's Spirit for a particular purpose moves upon God's people for the building up of the body and the encouragement of the saints and he gifts his people in particular times for particular reasons, to speak in languages that they have never learned before. And without taking too much time to go into it, that is what I honestly believe is happening here because of something that Luke records for us. This, this gift of tongues, is, it's a speaking gift, and it's given to some people, and it offers a praise, and it offers a, a prayer to God in a, a language they didn't know before. And if you look at verse 11 in Acts chapter 2, Luke records that all of those who had gathered when they heard all this going on, they heard the disciples telling them in their own tongues. So they weren't telling them and speaking in in languages that were unknown to men. There wasn't a simply vertical dimension to their conversation that was going on here in in tongues of of angels and heavenly language that nobody could understand and needed some level of interpretation that God often gives by His Spirit. These men heard these Galileans speaking in their languages, telling of the mighty works of God, translated the mega works of God. And that phrase occurs two more times in the book of Acts, in chapters 10 and chapters 19. And every time it occurs, it's used in the context of God's people praising, exalting, or extolling the work of God and the redemptive purposes of Christ. So these men, moved and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, began to speak in known languages that they had never learned, they had never studied, that spoke to the languages of those that Luke is going to record who were present there for celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, who gathered around them perplexed and amazed at what was going on because they heard these Galileans who had a reputation in that time for butchering the languages and accents of the nations around them, speaking perfectly in their tongues of the mighty mega works of God as they have been revealed through history in the person of Jesus. That's what was going on here. Don't get spooky and confused about what was happening. God was fulfilling something. I mean, imagine. 
we've talked a few times here about what it would take to actually put in some of those translator booths in the back and the little UN earphones for people who attend Redemption Hill who English is not their native language. And what would it be like if we could provide interpretation in some of the major languages here for the service here and could gather uh, non-native English speakers to our service to hear the gospel and the scriptures proclaimed in their native tongue. But at this moment, at this time, for God's purposes, those kind of headphones weren't needed. I want you to grasp what's happening here. There is a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual moment of exaltation going on here. But in my experience and in my knowledge has never been repeated. The arrival of God's Spirit, the fulfilling of God's promise has brought a universal, multinational, multilingual eruption of praise. Eruption of praise to God for the fulfillment of His promises. We can't do Acts 2 again. By God's grace is the significance of it. The moment drops in your heart. You won't want to do Acts 2 again. Because the long-awaited hope and promise was fulfilled. But we can ponder anew. We can and we should ponder anew what the Almighty God might do if by His love He befriends thee, which we know by the fulfillment of His promise through the person and work of Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection, He has done that very thing and He has called us His own. What would it take for us to ponder anew what the Almighty might do? Not recycle what's been done, but fresh, Fresh wind. Fresh fire. Why did the people there respond the way they did? I don't want you to miss this either. Let's read verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they all came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Now don't miss, again, the forest for the trees. The wind, the fire, the filling, the tongues, those were not the greater miracle going on. Those were, were not the greater wonders going on. What we see happening in these last few verses point to a wonder and a fulfillment <laughs> that God's people had been waiting for since the beginning of His promises suddenly in that moment at that time of Pentecost in this day as their disciples obeyed and they waited and they prayed the spirit of God that had withdrawn from his people suddenly Luke says came upon his people and took up residence in his people and there was a service 
that only foreshadowed what will happen for all of eternity before God. As people from surrounding tribes and tongues and nations gathered to hear and to celebrate the mighty works of God through Jesus. Acts chapter 2 was a great reversal of what you read about in Genesis chapter 11. You know the story. You know the significance. You know the parallels. Mankind had gathered together under one common language to make a great name for themselves. They said, what can we do to make a great name for themselves? And they began to build a tower to ascend to God. And God, because of the evil that resided in their hearts, destroyed the tower they were building, but scattered them, gave them all different tongues, different languages. Now in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the celebration of the harvest, the first fruits, God is now harvesting his thousands of years of promise. At this moment, in this time, and in this place, God is grabbing hold and waving high the way they would have at Pentecost, the first fruits of his promise being fulfilled and a first fruit of what was to come as he was gathering people from the nations together, filling them, renewing them, restoring them, redeeming them, causing them to cry out in celebration for the great things that he had done for them through Jesus. Pentecost, Acts 2, it means that the Spirit of God, presence of God, power of God, transformation of God is not resided to one people. It is universal. No one is excluded. No color, no creed, no nation, no tribe, no economic circumstance is separated from the love of God shown in Christ Jesus and the Spirit of God poured out through him. The new covenant that had been long awaited, that the prophets had pointed to, that the people had longed for, the new covenant had come. God is now dwelling in the hearts of his people. He has removed from them the heart of stone, given them a heart of flesh, written his law upon their hearts that they might desire to delight in him, desire to obey him. God has fulfilled that promise through the sacrificial work of Jesus in our place for our sins. And he has poured out his spirit, not just on some as they all had experienced, but he has poured out his spirit on all. That's the significance of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Jesus said it was better for us Better for them, better for us, for him to leave. Because when he would leave, he would send his Holy Spirit. And through God's indwelling Spirit, through his indwelling Spirit, we have greater access to God's presence and power than they had ever had before. Don't miss that. Through Jesus ascending, and then sending his Holy Spirit to fulfill his promises, we now have greater access to the presence and power of God through the indwelling Spirit of God in us than ever before. Jesus has become a mediator for us and given us his very Spirit, and no one is left out of this. So let me 
Let me wrap this up for us this way. Just as Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will bear witness to him, he then sends us out now to be his witnesses. He empowers us by the very Spirit whose job it is to bear witness to him. And we are now enabled by that Spirit through Jesus' grace to do the very thing and be the very people he's called us to be. We're meant to be a community of people who are overflowing with enjoyment of God's grace, who are empowered by his Spirit to engage in his mission fully, to be his witnesses. He has fulfilled the long-awaited promise that has enabled us to do that, and he has provided for us the one thing we need to be the people he has called us to be, to do the thing that he has called us to do. Do you sense your need for it? That's how you've got to deal with this. Do you sense your need for it? Fresh wind, fresh fire. By God's grace, may we ponder anew what the Almighty may do if in his love he befriends us and we have the fulfillment of that promise. Let me pray. Father, thank you for thank you for your word. Thank you for your consistency to uphold your promises. Thank you for coming and rescuing us. Father, cultivate in me, cultivate in us a willingness and a desire to ponder anew what you, the Almighty, may do. And cultivate in us an openness to the presence of your Spirit and the power of your Spirit guiding us and empowering us in new and in fresh ways for your glory, for your glory that we might be a people empowered by your Spirit who will live to tell of the mighty works, the mighty works that you have done, and will live as witnesses to the reality and the power of those mighty works. We ask that our lives together as a people would bring you much glory, that your name would be lifted up in this city through this church. And our hope is set not on ourselves and our abilities, but on your son Jesus, who has made that possible through his life, death, and resurrection and fulfillment of his promise to send us your very spirit. May he be glorified. Amen.